in Washington, D.C. wants to be on the record for doing the right thing? Let's keep them in check. The David Webb Show. Visit davidwebbshow.com. One of the three official museums of the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps Command Museum in San Diego, is a tribute to the Corps, the history of the Corps, and part of the ongoing effort to educate recruits as they take their first steps on those yellow footsteps and then on towards their future as a United States Marine. It was my honor to speak at the Command Museum's Foundation Dinner this past week, and I recorded a three-part series, World War I, Vietnam, and Current Conflict, being briefed by their docents, and in this case, World War I, I was briefed by Lieutenant Colonel Len Howard, uh, USMC retired, and tomorrow we will play Vietnam. The following day we will play the current conflict at this same time. Here it is, Lieutenant Colonel Len Howard, USMC retired, World War One. I feel that World War One is probably the most significant event of the last 150 years. The, uh, uh, the trouble with uh, a lot of Americans is that uh, the events of World War II eclipse what happened in World War I, and yet no single event in world history has really impacted the political situation, uh, what we're dealing with in the Middle East, uh, having to endure 70 years of uh, uh, communist Russia um, and uh, the rise of communism in the world. All of it stems from World War I. In addition to that, uh, World War I forced the United States onto the world stage. And it made the United States Marine Corps uh, actually a strategic asset, valuable to uh, the uh, uh, efforts of the United States in a world situation. Uh, before that, we were, the Marine Corps was really um, almost a bush warfare uh, outfit, small campaigns here and there. But after World War I, uh, we turned around and uh, modernized to the point that uh, we could actually influence the course of a, of a, a theater, course of a war, uh, and that was to aid us in World War II, of course. But uh, let's go on and, and step into the main gallery. <coughs> the um, uh, World War I started in 1914, okay? But uh, the United States wanted no part of it. They, uh, the vast majority of Americans wanted to stay neutral, and that was the announced uh, political stance of uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, in addition to that, there was a, su a substantial German population in the Midwest that wanted uh, no part of fighting the, the fatherland, and there was a substantial Irish population that wanted no part in defending Great Britain. So uh, Woodrow Wilson had a lot of support for that, that neutrality. However, that didn't mean that the United States Marine Corps didn't take steps during those years from the Spanish-American War up to World War I to start gearing up. In the Spanish-American War, we realized that we were really behind the power curve, that we were very, very, uh, um, we needed modernization. And to that end, we turned around and adopted 
1903 Springfield. The program of rifle marksmanship came into to effect. In 1912, we turned around and adopted our first camouflage uniform. And uh, as you'll notice, there's uh, flat black buttons that didn't reflect light. We also, in that same year, adopted the uh, Lewis machine gun, the only service, uh, well, the Navy as well, but the only ones who really adopted this machine gun. And the significance of that is that it was a light, air-cooled, mobile piece of uh, firepower that could accompany and advance. It could set down a base of fire. It could uh, covering fire. And it could go with the maneuvering elements across the battlefield. No other military uh, uh, army in the world was thinking in that terms. The Germans had a 150-pound uh, machine gun killing machine in the uh, Maxim. The British had the Vickers. The U.S. Army uh, had the Browning uh, water-cooled, but the U.S. Marine Corps opted up, opted for this, which showed their, their advanced thinking. We also turned around and started boot camp we created a, a location where we had a uniform standard of training. And we also went to advanced infantry training at Quantico. All of these steps turned around and made the United States Marine Corps uh, gear up and in a, in a state of, of preparedness uh, exceeding, uh, I think, the other services. Uh, in 1914, of course, World War I was declared, and immediately General Barnett, our commandant, he turned around and sent Marine officers to observe the fighting and report back on what their uh, observations were. The, um, the uh, United States, like I said, had adopted strict neutrality. Well, the, uh, the Germans endangered that or, or really uh, threatened that because they practiced uh, right from the very beginning, they practiced uh, unrestricted uh, submarine warfare, which turned American sentiment against the Germans. This reached a crescendo in 1915 when the Lusitania was sunk, and 126 Americans went down with those other thousand uh, men, women, and children. Uh, Germany, realizing that they couldn't afford to have the United States as a as an adversary at that time, they turned around and suspended submarine warfare. However, uh, as the years went by, 1915, 1916, going into 1917, the war had dragged into stalemate, into trench warfare. And um, the, uh, the Germans resumed uh, submarine, unrestricted submarine warfare. When they did, uh, they, they took steps to, to try and keep America out of the conflict. And one of those steps, one of the, the really instigating factors was that they turned around and the foreign minister of Germany, uh, a man by the name of Zimmerman, he turned around and used the American diplomatic code. What Woodrow Wilson had offered to the Germans in order to enhance the possibility of a ceasefire and peace, the Germans used it to send a telegram to Mexico urging them to attack the United States and that they would back them up. When this news came out, well, <laughs> actually the uh, German-American population, the Irish-American population, uh, they made uh, 
claims that it was all false news. It was fake news. Um, and it was uh, generated by Woodrow Wilson in order to get us into the conflict. But that was put to rest when Zimmerman himself admitted to the U.S. ambassador, yes, I sent that, that telegram. And to paraphrase it, yes, and what are you going to do about it? Well, in April, in April, the United States uh, declared war, April 1917. And the United States Marine Corps, immediately upon uh, declaration of war, had, had uh, adopted a uh, new recruiting slogan, and that was First to Fight. First to Fight was, was a great recruiting uh, slogan because it, it uh, drew the, uh, the most aggressive, the most um, combative, uh, volunteers you could imagine and we the US Marine Corps ended up uh, taking one out of every ten we had our pick of people and we got the very cream of the crop and they were sent to uh, uh, Paris Island for initial training and then to Quantico but General Barnett had to keep that promise of first to fight and in so and to do so, he had to get his Marines over to France. And frankly, Pershing didn't want them. He did not want the, the U.S. Marines in uh, 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 France in the theater of operations. And to that end, the, um, the Secretary of War, uh, uh, who was in Pershing's hip pocket, he turned around and told Barnett that there, there was no shipping available. But Barnett, with foresight, had turned around and talked to the Chief of Naval Operations, secured the use of five ships, and Barnett was able to tell the Secretary, don't worry about it, I've got my own shipping. And the first unit to arrive in France for the United States Marine Corps was the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. In those intervening months between um, uh, July of uh, 1917 all the way up to January, uh, the Marines and the um, American military, the AEF, the American Expeditionary Forces, they were building up, troops were coming over, but they had a huge, huge learning curve to uh, overcome. The American forces, even the Marines included, had never faced interlocking bands of machine gun fire. They had never faced uh, hundreds of yards of barbed wire entanglements. They had no knowledge of flamethrowers, gas, tanks, trench mortars, creeping barrages, box barrages, uh, uh, drum fire barrages. All of these were new to them. And to kind of uh, make the situation a little bit more exciting, if you will, in November of 1917, the Russians dropped out of the conflict. And when they did, the Germans suddenly had numerical superiority on the Western Front. The Americans weren't coming, uh, hadn't built up their, their true potential yet, and all of these veteran German soldiers, more than a million, were transferred from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. In March of 1918, as the U.S. Marines were deployed into the trenches of Verdun, a quiet sector at that time, the Germans launched their first offensive against the British Fourth Army, called the Michael Offensive, up in Flanders Field. They smashed through the Fourth British Army and got as far as Amiens. The offensive ran out of steam. Uh, 
the, the logistical support wasn't there for it. But the, that didn't mean that the Germans didn't try again. The following month, they turned around in, and in operation um, uh, against the French, they had uh, hit just south of the Somme, and again, the, the French gave way, but then they solidified, and once again, the offensive was stopped. Finally, uh, Operation Blucher, the Germans hit right down around Chateau Thierry, and they get within 30 miles of Paris. And that's when uh, General Foch, the overall commander, Marshal Foch of the, of the French, he turns around and begs Pershing for U.S. troops. And, he, and Pershing releases the first and the second divisions of the U.S. Army, third division as well. These were the best of the best. And the U.S. Marine Corps was in the second division as the 4th Marine Brigade. The Marines on that in, at the very end of May, they turned around and they marched up the Paris Metz Road towards Belleau Wood. And you know, on June 3rd, they were in a position, they were in a position uh, on the edge of a uh, tree line, and before them was a wheat field, and beyond that was Belleau Wood. Belleau Wood, as you see in this painting, Belleau Wood was really a game preserve, and it was no bigger than half the size of Central Park. And the Germans, hearing that there were new uh, troops, fresh troops, on the opposite side of this wheat field, they launched a probing attack across it. And those Marines were standing by, they were ready. And they opened fire with their Springfields. At 800 yards, they started dropping them. And they turned around and they didn't shoot the ones in the front of the formation, they shot the ones at the back of the formation. That way the, the ones in the lead would keep on coming, allow them to be more deadly in the attack because they could kill more of them. At any rate, the Germans realized that they were up against a, a new element here. They turned and ran back into Bella Wood and they filed a report and uh, they made an assessment of the troops that were in front of them and they said, these Americans, these new Americans in front of us, they're Stosstruppen, which means stormtroops, the highest level that they could give. Now on June 6th, it was our turn to go across that wheat field. And the U.S. Marines turned around and the 5th and 6th Marines, uh, the 5th the on the left flank, the 6th on the right flank, they advanced across. The 5th Marines went up against uh, Hill 142. Two companies of the 5th Marines overran that hill and uh, the rest of the, of the regiment and the rest of the 6th Marines advanced across the wheat field into Bellow Wood. On that day, the, sixth, the, uh, the Marine Brigade, the, uh, uh, in total, lost more men than we had in our entire Marine Corps history from 1775 up to that point. We turned around and um, we fought our way into the woods, and the map is actually out here. We fought our way into the woods, and for the next uh, uh, two weeks until June uh, 12th, the U.S. Marines were fighting in there. They actually went all the way across the woods thinking that they had taken the whole thing. But the entire northern half was still in enemy hands. On the 12th of June, the Marines were relieved by the 7th Army Regiment. 
and they had suffered 50% casualties. They pulled out, but a week later they came back into the line and found that the 7th Regiment hadn't, hadn't advanced at all. So the Marines turned, did a uh, left face, and cleared the rest of the woods, and on the 26th of June we could claim that the entire woods were U.S. Marine Corps property. Because of this battle, the United States Marine Corps earned the title Tuffelhunden, Devil Dogs. We also ended up getting the woods to, in perpetuity, this is called Bois de Bellot de la Marine Brigade. And we also won our first of three Croix de Guerres that's manifested in the Forager that Marines in the 5th and 6th Regiments still wear to this day. Now, the following month, the U.S. Marines did uh, an even more spectacular advance. Uh, the following month in July, the, the American 1st uh, and 2nd Divisions were once again loaned to the French and they uh, attacked at Soissons. And the U.S. Marines in 24 hours drove four miles behind the Hindenburg Line and took the town of Verzay. When they did that, they earned their second Croix de Guerre. Now the following month they turned around and uh, were working with the uh, uh, First American Army, and they reduced the St. Mihal uh, salient, which actually was, was a, a time when Americans realized that <clears throat> we still had a lot to learn. Our uh, coordination of, of bombardments, our uh, communications, the logistical uh, problems that we faced in the reduction of this uh, salient, uh, we were we would have to work on for future battles. But after that was reduced, the United States uh, First Army, the only army that the, that the Americans produced in the war, they turned around and prepared for a all-American offensive. And the first and second divisions initially weren't part of it. This was going to be the uh, attack on the Meuse-Argonne which started on September 26th and was to go until November 11th, okay? But the second division was still lent to the French and they participated in the taking of Blancmont on October 4th. Blancmont was, was taken in 24 hours of fighting and once again the, the, uh, the uh, uh, French were astounded at Marine Corps performance. They turned around and got their third Croix de Guerre in that action. Now, like I mentioned before, the uh, Meuse-Argonne commenced on September 26th. And the uh, Americans, uh, they actually had to suspend action uh, in the course of it after two weeks of fighting and reorganize and regroup. The second and first divisions came back and on the last night of, the, of the, the war, on the last night of the war, the uh, U.S. Marines, the, the Marine Brigade, actually stormed across the Meurs River. This was the last offensive, the last offensive attack by, by the Americans in World War I. And uh, some people would turn around and say, you know, why would the Americans turn around and attack on November 10th knowing that the war was going to end. There was going to be a ceasefire on the following day. Well, the sentiments, the sentiments uh, on, amongst certain people 
and even amongst a lot of Marines, was that the Germans weren't beat. The Germans were not beat, and Pershing wanted to, to inflict upon the Germans a defeat that they would acknowledge, that they would accept the, the, the fact that they had been defeated on the battlefield. Clemenceau, the French premier, thought the same thing. Clemenceau turned around, and at the signing of the uh, Versailles Treaty, he, he said, I fear that we have just signed a ceasefire and we'll have to do it over again 20 years from now. He was wrong by six months. What, what uh, this attack did uh, was establish a, a, a bridgehead on the other side, uh, in German lines, on the other side of the Meuse River. And at the 11th hour, on the 11th day of the 11th month, the ceasefire was declared. Uh, the efforts of, of Pershing, Clemenceau, the sentiments of, of inflicting a, uh, a defeat on the Germans, it failed. It failed because the Germans marched back into Germany uh, never acknowledging that they had been defeated. They were welcomed as heroes. They, they turned around and marched through the uh, Unterlinden uh, uh, and the Brandenburg Gate uh, hailed as never having been defeated. And that was the birth of the stab in the back claim that they had, that they, that they came up with. And that was, of course, expanded upon by, by uh, unscrupulous elements. The, um, this war turned around, and at the very beginning of the presentation, I said that it made the United States Marine Corps a, a modern, military uh, organization. There were some interesting ramifications out of that because of even Pershing acknowledged that the U.S. Marines turned out to be first-class fighting men. The U.S. Marines, he turned around and acknowledged, if the Marines can do it, why can't the soldiers do it? They're the same kind of men. And this was the kind of, of uh, respect that, they, that the Marine Corps earned. But they also earned the resentment of a lot of people, including Harry S. Truman, uh, who was a captain of artillery. And he ended up hating the Marine Corps. And there was a lot of sentiment in that direction. As a result of what the Marine Corps did in World War I, the Marine Corps was directed to look to the Pacific because you're not going to Europe. And the end result of that was the creation of the amphibious landing manual and the uh, uh, what you'd say the, uh, the uh, creation and refinement of one of the most complicated military operations there is, amphibious assault uh, against a fortified position. The Marine Corps mastered it, but it was because of what they did in World War I. And uh, um, we walked away with a uh, pocket full of, of glory, and we ended up paying, uh, being steered in a certain direction because of it. So uh, are there any questions that you have uh, for me? Well, part of the history, and you talk about World War I to today, uh, is maintained here at the right. Recruit Depot as new Marines come in and place their feet on those yellow footsteps. What do you say to those next generation of Marines? 
Well, the, the, any Marine uh, should study history. They should study what we did here because this is what made the U.S. Marine Corps the modern strategic weapon that it is. And uh, uh, only from this struggle can you see uh, uh, the origins of a lot of uh, uh, tactical and uh, uh, elements that we practice to this day. Uh, we came up with elastic defense. We came up with uh, reverse slope defense. We turned around and learned how to coordinate uh, artillery fire with troop movement. We turned around and uh, close air support was born out of this. Also, the importance of air power was, was highlighted because of this conflict. All of these origins and the way how they, they, they came about uh, are a subject that, that uh, every military man, if he's going to be a professional, has got to be aware of and should be aware of. It's not just accepting what's in, a, in the guidebook. Learn what led up to it, what the thought process was to develop this theory, this, this, uh, the events that created this. Tomorrow, we'll have the segment with First Lieutenant Mike West, uh, also a Vietnam veteran, and then on Thursday, Master Gunnery Sergeant Artie Allen on a forward deployed gallery. So the Marine Corps Museum Foundation, one of the three official command museums of the Marine Corps at MCRD San Diego, is open to the public. If you get a chance, go out there and take a look at it. Great history, uh, great legacy, and of course, current and look into the future of the Marine Corps and its role in our military around the world. And of course, as a part of our American family, their website, mcrdmuseumfoundation.org. Tomorrow, again, uh, First Lieutenant Mike West, uh, Vietnam veteran who walked me through and will walk you through as a docent for the museum, uh, the Vietnam Gallery.